Well, I am the new pastor at Christ Church, and I want to share with you a few observations. First of all, this is a remarkable place and a remarkable people. I've been here, little Laurie and I have been here um, just a little less than 90 days. I'm learning my way around. I'm meeting people. I'm getting acclimated to the place. Really, really love it. I haven't even been lost in the basement in like three weeks, so I feel like I'm really gaining on it. I arrived here with a broken foot, although I didn't know it was broken until sometime after I had gotten here and found a real doctor who told me, oh, your foot hurts because it's broken. So I want to assure you, I didn't kick anybody. Nobody kicked me. I simply exercised like I was 30 years old, and when I felt it hurting, I didn't stop. So if you don't get anything else out of this message, just know if your foot really hurts and you've stressed it out too much, it'll break. It's just what happens. I should add a couple of other preliminary comments. My wife and I are both very glad to be at this church, this good and gracious place. We also have four children, just so you'll know a little bit about us. We have four children, two of whom are still in college, two are older than that. And we're finding that this empty nest stage of life is really okay. And we're trying to pass that message on to our children on a regular basis now (laughs) and hope that they get the message. As a new pastor to a church, you get to see a place through fresh eyes. Um, the, the fresh eyes that I bring to this are, are telling me this is a really special place. Um, Laurie and I started a church a long time ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is our hometown. We pastored there. I was pastor there, founding pastor for 17 years. I recently have been the executive pastor at a very, very large church in California. And I've spent four years of my life working for our, the denomination I'm a part of, traveling around, speaking, consulting. And I can tell you that after seeing, the only reason I tell you all of that is to say I, I know a good church when I see one. So it was pretty easy to say yes to this place. And having been here nearly 90 days, I can tell you you've got something very special going on here. Dan Meyer is a remarkable leader and an incredible communicator. And I don't think I need to say this, but I hope you trust you know what a remarkable senior pastor you have. And I also hope you, I, you, you would trust that I know that I will tell you that he did not tell me to say that. <laughs> but he should have. Dan is just a wonderful person to work with. And my fellow staff people, the people I get to work with on a daily basis, are, good, are gifted and godly people, just the kind of people you want to be around. So don't take this place for granted. There are people here, you, many, many other people with these remarkable Christian graces in a place with a great history and a great future. So it's something to really cherish. So the text this morning, this evening, is on worry. I wish I could tell you I'm preaching about worry because I'm an expert at how not to worry. The truth is, I need to preach on worry, on, about worry because I need this passage so much. I've got worrying down to a fine art. I'm really good at it, actually. I've worried all week about preaching on worry. I know this subject. 
But in truth, I'm making progress by God's grace. A lot of progress. And so I'm content in trying to share what I've learned with you because maybe you too, if you're a fellow worrier, you can make progress. If you're prone to worry, and if you think by worrying well, you're cooperating with God's intentions for your life, today's a good day to think a different way. So let's get at what Jesus is saying in this teaching. The Greek language has this wonderful way of nuancing words in a way that's probably better than our English. And the Greek word for worry or anxiety here, also translated as cares, means two, has two principal meanings. The first one is worry is having excessive concern for the future. Anybody here who has an excessive concern for the future? That would often describe me. It also implies, this one's even a little more difficult to hear, it also implies thinking too intensely about oneself, making the whole of life about us, and wrestling with it, and fretting over it, and having anxiety about it. That's what worry is in this biblical context. So is that you? I've already made my confession. Is that you? I don't expect you to raise your hands. I'll give you a zone of privacy. The truth is we all have concerns, and I'm not exactly sure when a concern becomes a worry. I don't know how to define that. But Jesus' words here are not about caring about things. We can't just be numb to life. And this passage is also not talking about people who suffer from really severe anxiety-related disorders. This isn't a simplistic cure for complex and really difficult problems. This passage is about how to transfer the wasted energy of worry to a rock-solid belief in the providence, the care, and the love of God. The whole counsel of God gives the same message as Jesus' words here in Matthew. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, and bear in mind, this was written to a church undergoing extensive, extreme persecutions for their faith. Peter writes to that group of people, and he says simply, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Paul spoke the same way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The teaching of the church The teaching of Scripture is consistent. We can trust God with our lives. We can trust God with our concerns. We can trust God with our worries and our cares. And we, no matter what our circumstances, can live with joy in the midst of life's struggles. I'd like us to wrestle with two questions tonight. Here's the first one of them. This is the first one I want you to wrestle with. 
Do you believe in God's ability and desire to provide for you? Do you believe in God's ability and desire to provide for you? We live in a time of some pretty odd teachings on this subject, even even in the church. On the one hand, there are prosperity preachers, they're called, who basically say that if we have enough faith and we pray just the right way, using just the right words often enough, God is obligated to answer our prayers the way we want Him to. Usually this means God will make us rich and God will make us well. This approach, though appealing, essentially turns God into a kind of celestial bellhop where we have the bell and we ring the bell and God hops to and says, what can I do for you? And we tell him and then he goes and does it for us. But God isn't a celestial bellhop. That's not who he is. He doesn't always scurry to us when we ring the bell. On the other hand, we hear the voices of the faithless that say, in essence, pray all you want to. God, even if he's strong enough to to help you out, is really busy, and he may not have time to take care of your needs. He'll get back to you when he can. In other words, in this case, God is kind of like the individual on the end of the 800 number that you call when you're trying to assemble something on Christmas Eve for your children, and you can't get through, and they don't have helpful information, and we'll just get back to you sometime later. God doesn't take either of those approaches. The whole counsel of the Word and the clear message of Jesus is that God will provide for our needs, not our greeds, but God will provide for our needs. God who provides for the birds of the air will take care of us too. I had an occasion to encounter this particular truth about the birds in the air shortly before we left California on our move here. We had put our house up for sale, and I was attempting to do some home maintenance, which is kind of like a solar eclipse for me. It only comes around every once in a while. So I'm doing some home repair chores, and one of the ones I needed desperately to do was to clean out the gutters around the house. So I get a ladder, I've leaned it up against the gutters, I'm up fairly high, and I'm cleaning out the gutters all around the house and go back down, move the ladder, go clean out some more, and I'm cleaning out these handfuls of debris that have gathered there over, over time. And in one of those handfuls of debris, I actually looked down and realized I had just grabbed part of a bird's nest. Unintentionally, I had grabbed part of a bird's nest. Fortunately, I had missed the eggs because I looked down into the gutter and there were eggs still there in the remaining part of the nest, precariously perched in that nest. And there's a mother bird looking at me. She's not happy. She's not the least bit happy with me. We're about an arm's length away Again, I'm on a ladder. I'm not, as you can perhaps already tell, the most graceful person on earth. Uh, 
I need to get down the ladder quickly. I need to make peace with the bird. I need to do something. So I'm thinking fast, but unproductively. We're frozen in a standoff. Mother bird glaring at this tall stranger on a ladder and me. She looked ready to attack. In my mind, you know, your mind works quickly in those circumstances. You may not know what to do, but you're thinking a lot. And in my mind, I'm already thinking about the evening newscast. Um, Area pastor in critical condition tonight at a local hospital having been attacked by a sparrow. I don't like the sound of it. Finally, all I knew to do was slowly back down the tall ladder. Mother Sparrow was more interested in her eggs than she was in getting even with me, and the crisis was calmed, and I was greatly relieved. And I ended my work for the day, of course. I thought soon thereafter, and still today, how amazing is God's creation. That little bird, tiny bird, with a tiny little head, that tiny, tiny little brain was hardwired by the Creator God to defend and protect her young. She knew that her, the, the little birds in those eggs needed to be protected by her mother. She knew what had to be done, and it was built into her system, into her being to know how to take care of her young. No wonder Jesus pointed to these little creatures as a sign of what God has done and what God will do. The birds don't plant seeds. They don't harvest them. They save nothing for a rainy day. They have no barns to put away food for the cold winter. But God still feeds them, and they're designed to live. If God does that for birds, Jesus said, what will he do for us who are the crown of his creation, those created in his very own image? So do we believe in God's ability to provide for us? That's the question. Well, the answer is pretty obvious. Sure we do. We read that text, and who wants to disagree with Jesus? So we say we agree with that text. It's not that we would say, Jesus, I disagree with what you just said. The problem is, is that we don't see the advantage in implementing his teaching. So we give a polite nod to these admittedly beautiful words, and then we reserve the right to worry about all the important things, health, finances, our family, whatever we think God needs help with, because after all, he clearly needs our help so that we'll continue to worry with them. So we develop patterns of life that include regularly being anxious about something or someone as we think about the future, and we live in that routine. Occasionally, we realize we're worrying too much, and so we start to make little adjustments. I love how the wonderfully neurotic Charlie Brown once put it. He said, I've developed a workable philosophy. I only dread one day at a time. So I would say to myself and to anyone else who, like Charlie, has maybe tweaked this some but is worrying still one day at a time, 
how's that working for you? How's that working for you? How's that cooperation with God? Because after all, he can't handle it very well, so we'll handle it for him. How's that working? So the first question, do you believe in God's ability and desire to provide for us? That's one we all need to answer, not just tonight, but on a regular basis. The second question is this. Will you dare to believe Jesus' teaching and determine to live by faith rather than by fear? Will you dare to believe Jesus' teaching and live by faith rather than fear? To my new friends at this wonderful church, I don't need to remind you that there's a lot to be afraid of in this world if you want to live in fear. We live on this side of heaven where really bad things happen. We've lived through four years in an economy that most of us have never experienced before and has caused a lot of pain and suffering for a lot of people. We have lived through a decade's worth of wars. They seem ceaseless. We watch endless loops in the last couple of weeks on the media as the video shows the chaos of the recent tragedy in Colorado. And all of this is simply to say we get plenty of evidence that we live on this side of heaven, that we live in a broken world, that we live where the enemy lives, that life is a struggle. And if you want to be afraid, there's plenty to be afraid of. And sometimes it all just feels too much, like too much to deal with. And life is uh, just too hard to understand. But we're the people of God. That's what the church tells us. That's what the scripture tells us. We're the people of God. And as the people of God, we're called to another response. And it's the response of faith, not fear. It's the response of faith over fear. Because for Christ's followers, this is the central affirmation. And it will affect all that we do, not just how we think, not just how we'll feel, but it'll affect all that we do. And there are countless examples of this. You see, fear tells us that when the world erupts in terror... We're doomed to be trapped in a perpetual kind of despair. Faith tells us this world isn't our final home. That's yet to come. Fear tells us that when a marriage struggles, it's doomed to fail. Faith tells us that reconciliation is the way of Jesus, and it's entirely possible for love to thrive again. Fear tells us, as parents, that no one seems to care about our struggling child. Faith tells us that God cares about our child and loves our child even more than we do. Fear tells us that the world's economy is in terrible shape and that our personal financial picture is bleak. Faith tells us 
that God has made a promise that he will provide for his children's future. What fear and anxiety do, those twin demons of fear and anxiety, what they really do is they drain us of energy, they drain us of hope. Faith tells us we live in the orbit of grace and that we live in the renewing presence of the Spirit. Fear would deny that. Faith tells us it's true. We live in the realm of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who is promised to sustain us in difficult times. In the midst of the carnage of World War II, Historians have written about a a really hopeful thing that happened in the midst of a small village in the little country of Lithuania in 1940. Lithuania is a country that's just this small place and it's sandwiched around this massive country of Russia and later, well, in the Soviet Union at this time. And the Soviets had kind of come across that country hostily before, but In 1940, the Russians overran the little country completely, and they began to capture and kill countless numbers of Lithuanian people. The people lived every day in terror, constant sense of terror, wondering if they would be the next person who would be shot or who would be hauled off to a concentration camp. No sane person, not even the most faithful saint who had lived in that part of Lithuania at that time could really have been at peace about what was happening to their country, to them, to their families. That whole country was basically occupied, but there was this one little village that had a unique and healing response to the troubles they were going through. It seems that this village had a small hill. It was just outside the little village limits The little hill was only about 30 feet high. It was just a small little hill. And it sat just outside their town. And this village, this Lithuanian village, had had a strong Christian presence for hundreds of years. And for a long time, at least a couple of hundred years, the villagers there had used that little hill as a place to go place a cross in memory of someone whose life was taken or in memory of some event that had happened that had been tragic, they would go and place another cross and they would pound it into that little hill as just a reminder of who God is and that God would protect them and God would be with them and God was with them in the memory of the one they had lost. The little hill was effectively um, a hill of just, just a hill of crosses, Some were made of wood, some were made of iron, some were actually made out of cement, but it was a little hill full of crosses. As the Russians had come in 1940 in this latest wave of terror, the Russian soldiers mocked this little hill and they mocked all of the crosses and they mocked the people because in their world it was a superstitious insult to to. Uh, rational atheism, that people would think that somehow pounding a cross into a hillside would make any difference. So they issued a a ban on cross-planting. No more cross-planting, but it did no good. 
the villagers would slip away in the cover of night and they'd plant more crosses in memory of those recently killed or captured. The Russians would fire up the bulldozers during the day and they would mow down those crosses again and scrape them away. They burned the wooden crosses. They buried the cement crosses. They melted down the the iron crosses and they did it day after day after day. But still those people in that village came out and they planted crosses in that hill. And by day they came to that little hill and they got on their knees and they prayed. And they continued to pray and they continued to put up the crosses. And soon there were too many people coming to to the hill to deal with. The Soviets gave up trying to stop them. In fact, they were so irritated by this village, they finally just went away. Everybody here has worries that drag you down. We all have had fears that disable us. The relentless evil of the world is out there. But the promise of God is that the power of God is available to the people of God. There is no match for the victory of the cross. Believe this. The God who in Jesus Christ triumphed over death itself at the resurrection can overcome our worries and he can overcome our struggles The person who plants his or her cross of faith in his or her heart to say, God, this is my belief. You will provide for me. That person will know and experience the promise of God. Not that he meets all of our wishes, not that he meets all of our greeds, but that he has promised to meet our needs. The same God who wired and looks after the little birds who neither plant nor reap nor store away in barns. The same God who takes care of the birds asks us the question, will I not even more take care of you? Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe your promises. It's hard for us. We want to help. We think by worrying and by fretting and we think by struggling and and being all anxious and fearful that somehow we're going to make this all better in our lives. And it isn't so. So some of us need to plan a cross even tonight on a little imaginary hill somewhere in our life or mind or place and say, Lord, that very one thing I'm most worried about, I'm going to plant my cross there. And it's going to be a reminder in my mind that you will be victorious and that the God who takes care of the birds of the air is certainly looking after me. Lord, for the promise of this, we give you thanks. Help us to live by faith and not by fear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.